Hello, and welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as a social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series has been accredited for continuing medical education credit. The American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. Information about credit claiming for this and other episodes can be found at www.education.aaai.org forward slash podcasts. Credit claiming will be available for one year from the episode's original release date. Today, we are pleased to welcome Dr. Tamara Perry to today's episode. Dr. Perry is the Chief and Professor of the Allergy of Immunology Division at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences and Arkansas Children's Hospital in Little Rock. Dr. Perry has led a distinguished career as a researcher and clinician, focusing her efforts on improving health outcomes for children in rural and underserved communities, including a lot of work using telemedicine and school-based approaches to assist asthma management. In addition, Dr. Perry is a current member of the Board of Directors for the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology and Chair of the Committee on the Underserved. Dr. Perry is an excellent guest to help educate us all regarding today's discussion surrounding asthma disparities. Neither Dr. Perry nor I have any relevant relationships to disclose for today's conversation. Dr. Perry, thank you so much for taking time to join us and welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here today. Okay, well, we're going to learn so much from this conversation, and it's so topical and important. Uh, but before we get into the the content, you know, we're recording this right now in August of 2020, uh, a time marked by, you know, a global pandemic due to COVID-19. And we also have tremendous societal unrest uh, that was, you know, initially sparked by the murder of George Floyd several months ago. And I've been asking a lot of our guests the very same question before we get into things. But if you're willing to share, how are you doing? Thank you for asking. Um, well, I, I think I'm doing well, all things being considered. Um, I, you know, obviously, like everyone else, um, I've had, you know, some increased stress and frustration. I've had to learn to adapt to uncertainty. And, you know, obviously, we've had a lot of changes in the medical community. Um, but, you know, all in all, I've, I've really tried to focus on some of the positives, uh, like having an opportunity to spend more time, you know, at home with my family, um, just being a little bit more intentional about making those connections with families and friends. And and fortunately, I've been also able to take up a new hobby. Um, I've been cycling a few times a week. So trying to look at some of the positives, um, you know, in a, in a very stressful time um, that we're all experiencing together. Uh, I appreciate you sharing that. Is it is it outdoor cycling or are you doing something inside on a stationary Cycle. Yeah, so um, I've been doing outside uh, cycling. Uh, my husband and I both bought bikes recently, and we've been going a few times a week and, and loving it. It's great to get outdoors, especially, you know, since we can't travel or do some of the other things that we're typically doing at this time of the year. 
Oh, that's a great outlook. And, you know, I know we, we try to buy new bicycles for our children. Uh, and uh, apparently there's a huge shortage on all things that have to do with outdoor activities. And rightfully so, because everybody's thinking the same thing. Yeah, that's true. But the um, the shop where we purchase our bikes uh, said that they've been busier this summer than they've been in decades. Oh, my goodness. Well, uh, you know, I, I appreciate your perspective on your, your personal challenges and, and how you've adapted. But, you know, what about in regards to your professional career? Have the events over the last several months changed anything for you in regards to your approach to caring for patients or some of your research interests? Oh, definitely. Um, so, you know, just like um, we in the medical community have experienced a lot of stress and anxiety and frustration, I realize that our patients and uh, their parents have as well. Um, you know, we've all had to adjust to a new normal. So, uh, you know, some of my parents who previously worked outside of the home are now working out in the home, and our kids are, you know, faced with virtual or homeschooling, uh, and maybe even de dealing with uh, more serious issues like illness or financial struggles. So I've really tried to slow down a bit and listen to their concerns mm -hmm. because I know that those concerns impact their medical care. Uh, so just being a little bit more intentional about those conversations. Um, and, you know, I think just like providers, our patients have had to quickly adjust to some different modes of therapy and modes of communication with their providers. You know, many of us are utilizing telemedicine more. And so, you know, this is all new for our patients as well. So just, you know, trying to be patient and uh, intentional in conversations with the patients. Mm. Uh, you know, I'm sure a lot of patients, are, you know, may not even occur to them or they may not be forthcoming to bring these things up with you. But, you know, as you mentioned, we're all going through challenges. Do you have any examples of some of the conversation starters or questions that you use to sort of elucidate some of this information? Oh, absolutely. So usually I just, you know, ask a straightforward question, uh, like, how are you coping mm. with uh, this pandemic? And, you know, I've, I've had a lot of patients and their parents who are very um, honest about how stressed they are, you know, the struggle that they're having, uh, especially at this time of the year when parents are struggling with um, how and where and when their children will receive education. Mm. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I, I've also had valuable conversations with families from the from the get-go, and I learned so much just by listening to them. So I think it's something that all of us can benefit from. And um, as you mentioned, it really impacts their care and their health. And we're going to talk a lot more about that as we get into today's discussion. Um, so speaking of which, uh, you know, I'm looking more. I'm looking forward to learning more about the disparities. But before we get into that, let's just start so everybody sort of has the same background knowledge and you know definitions that we're going to use. So can you just you know can you define asthma for us and provide a description of you know why it's such a complicated and heterogeneous disease? Sure. Um, so asthma is a chronic disease of the lungs, um, hallmarked by underlying inflammation of the airways, increased mucus production, and variable bronchoconstriction. Um, commonly, patients uh, experience symptoms of coughing, uh, chest tightness, wheezing, wheezing, shortness of breath, and oftentimes exercise intolerance. Um, it's a heterogeneous disease that affects all ages and has variable expression, um, with some patients having very mild disease and easily control symptoms while others can have severe and difficult control to control symptoms. Um, you know, it's a very common um, chronic condition affecting um, 25 million Americans. Um, 
and children uh, also um, have asthma uh, as one of the most chronic, uh, I'm sorry, one of the most common chronic diseases uh, with uh, about 8% of children uh, having, 8 to 10% of children, depending on the population, having asthma. Uh, that prevalence can be even higher in some high-risk population. As uh, many of our listeners will know, uh, asthma disproportionately affects uh, patients in low-income and mi minority populations. Um, and, and these uh, facts just suggest that asthma is a multifactorial disease um, that results in, you know, variable expression um, and, and really explains the variability in patients that we see in the clinical setting. Hmm. Is there a cure for asthma? Oh, there's not a cure for asthma, but uh, we definitely have effective therapies that have been uh, proven uh, to uh, allow patients to have control of their symptoms and, and have normal quality, uh, well, normal life and, and great quality of life uh, because those therapies have been proven. Yeah, that yeah. So for any patients who may be listening, you know, if you're if you're not well controlled with your asthma and you're struggling because of frequent symptoms or exacerbations, absolutely contact your your primary care doctor, allergist, pulmonologist, and you know there are ways to get things under control. So that's a, that's a great introduction. Now the next step, you know, can you take a few moments to define disparities? Uh, what does that mean? Uh, and you know, how does that relate to asthma? You mentioned a couple of of teasers uh, with your last. Um, you know, uh, introduction into asthma, but tell us more. Okay. So disparities, um, well, I would define it as a um, uh, higher disease burden in one population compared to another population. Mm -hmm. um, you can also define disparity as an inequality in healthcare access or insurance, uh, uh, decreased quality of care um, provided to one group compared to the other. Uh, and unfortunately, disparities in asthma, uh, both prevalence as well as morbidity, have persist persisted um, for decades uh, in minority and low-income populations, um, with those populations having a much higher disease burden, as well as poor poorer access to uh, quality asthma care. Mm. Now, so you mentioned that the, the prevalence is higher in certain minority populations. Um, are they just at higher risk to develop asthma in the first place? Or, you know, tell us a little bit more about some of the background behind that. What, what influences have we, have we discovered through research? Well, um, through, well, I think for many, many years we, uh, we have made some assumptions uh, that genetic or biological factors uh, were, the, were primarily responsible for some of the observed disparities. But I think with recent advances in both uh, genetics and epigenetics, um, we found that that theory hasn't really been proven uh, through the scientific evidence. Uh, in fact, um, you know, genetics has proven that people are of different races are more similar than they actually are different from each other. And, mm -hmm. and I'm really not aware of um, any studies that definitively show that genetics cause a greater burden of asthma or allergies among minority populations or uh, are related to worse outcomes uh, just on the basis of race. I think, you know, one of the things that uh, we see in terms of disparities in healthcare outcomes 
are largely defined by some of the environmental and social factors uh, that are really related to um, race and income, particularly in this country. Mm. Uh, can you uh, elaborate on some of those factors and, and particularly how that may pertain to certain races or, or minority populations? Sure. Well, we know that, um, you know, about 13, uh, in particular, because I am a pediatric allergist, so I, I know more of the numbers related to pediatrics, but, you know, we know that about 13% of African-American children uh, have asthma, and that's much higher than um, uh, white children in, in the United States. And uh, because we don't have a, a genetic, you know, marker, I mean, you know, with all of the genetic studies that have been done, you know, there there really haven't been any salient genetic features that have, you know, shown us that, you know, this is the reason why more African-Americans uh, are affected by asthma. Uh, really, most of our studies have shown that when you go back and look at social uh, or environmental factors such as housing, air quality, exposure to um, allergens or other uh, env environmental triggers, those are the, the factors that really impact outcomes, uh, as well as likely uh, impacts the increased prevalence of, al of asthma in those populations. So it, from what I'm hearing from you, it sounds like um, it, the certain minority populations are more likely to be exposed to certain environmental factors, that that is then influencing their increased risk to develop asthma. Is that sound like a, an appropriate summary? I think that's an appropriate summary. And, and obviously, you know, um, there probably, there's a likelihood that exposure, either prenatal exposure, exposure in early childhood, you know, all of those factors uh, may have an impact on genetic expression of disease or mm -hmm. phenotypic expression of disease. Uh, so I think that it is uh, really important for us to think about uh, how those uh, environmental exposures, um, structural uh, uh, problems uh, that children in low-income uh, environments are exposed to that predisposes them to developing asthma. Mm. Are you talking about things such as the hygiene hypothesis and, and those sorts of theories? Um, well, I think it, it really probably goes beyond that to, to some degree, uh, because we do know that in some environments, um, we know that exposure to certain toxins or endotoxins or uh, early exposures can be protective. Uh, so I think that, that also, uh, you know, in terms of the hygiene hypothesis, it, it really does help us to see that it, how important environmental exposures are uh, and how that might influence long-term outcomes, whether that's improved or worsening, um, you know, the likelihood that someone may have uh, atopic disorders. Yeah, I, I appreciate you spending some time talking about that because what, I, what I'm hearing from you and what I want our listeners to, to hear as well is it's, it, it's no simple formula. Uh, it's a complicated, <laughs> you know, interactions of, you know, potential, you know, polymorphisms and genetic predisposition, early life factors. And it, it's not just, you know, you grow up in a house with cats and, you know, you're protected or you're increased risk or things like that. So uh, I think that's a really good sort of introduction to just how complex all of this is. And along those lines, um, 
you know, you mentioned some of these factors that are associated with increased risk to develop asthma and higher prevalence. Do we see the same um, associations with just developing environmental allergies to things like pollen, animal dander, dust mite as well? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, we, we know from some of the prior research that um, uh, in, in minority populations, particularly black or African-American populations, uh, we've seen higher levels of IgE, um, higher levels of um, uh, pheno or fractional excretion of nitric oxide on you know, pulmonary function testing. Uh, and so I think that some of these exposures are likely related to um, maybe modulation of gene expression uh, that would relate to what we see you know, in the laboratory or patient's experience in terms of increased risk of atrophy or having allergies. Mm, okay. Now, I'd like to go back to, you mentioned social factors. Uh, can you describe some of those, um, you know, specifics that impact the disparities regarding asthma prevalence and just, you know, how many people have asthma? Oh, sure. So, um, well, in the United States, uh, about 25 million Americans have asthma. Uh, when you look at the overall population of adults, that, that's approximately 7% of adults, 8% um, of children overall, uh, and as I mentioned earlier, um, African-American children um, uh, are more likely to have asthma um, with 14% of African-American children having asthma. Um, but in, when, in regards to the social aspect of it, is it, you know, access to care is different? Um, is it the type of insurance they have? Anything along those lines that we've been able to identify? Yeah, I think we've, we've identified um, a lot of risk factors uh, re related to uh, poor housing conditions, mm -hmm. uh, poor air quality. Uh, access to care is a major issue for some uh, low-income and minority populations. Um, you know, specialty care um, is accessible um, to a large percentage of um, uh, Americans, but there we have many uh, Americans who don't have access to um, specialty care, particularly those that live in rural environments or those who may be uninsured or underinsured. Um, we, we do know uh, also that many of the large um, population studies that have been done in asthma have been done in urban environments. We have fewer of those types of studies in uh, rural environments. Mm -hmm. uh, but for those studies that have been done, um, we, we do know that, you know, having low income, poor housing, you know, all of those things uh, translate uh, even if the child or the person is living outside of an inner city. And in fact, um, you know, our, our group here has done some work in um, what's considered the Mississippi Delta region of this mm. country, uh, which is one of the most impo impoverished regions of the United States. And we found, you know, very uh, similar asthma prevalence rates uh, to that of inner cities. Oh, it's interesting. Yeah, I, you mentioned air quality, and I, I'm I'm fixated on that because with asthma, obviously, with a respiratory condition, I would love your your thoughts on you know how do you assess that when you have patients in in you know a clinical encounter? What kinds of questions do you ask? What are the important exposures both inside and you know outside the home that impact air quality and potentially impact asthma as well? 
Yeah, so um, so one of the things, you know, obviously I, I currently don't practice in an inner city, but I think for our listeners who may live in or who are practicing in inner city, um, air air um, quality is is probably more of an issue because of traffic uh, uh, and dense population uh, environments and pollution. Uh, so that you know, those are things that you can definitely ask about. You know, are you uh, living in, a, in an area, you know, a large metropolitan or, or urban area with traffic uh, and lots of air air pollution? Uh, on the indoor environment, um, the number one uh, issue that our patients have is exposure to environmental tobacco smoke in the home, and uh, so I'm always ask about that and make sure that um, I educate uh, our families about that, that risk because that is definitely um, something that triggers uh, asthma and, and can also um, be responsible for poor indoor air quality. Uh, we do know that, you know, about 30% of kids live in the home with a smoker or, or asthmatic children live in a home with a smoker. And that's probably one of the uh, most modifiable uh, things that we can do in the home uh, to help our patients with asthma. Mm. You know, we've we've done a great job at my institution in Columbus, Ohio, where we've trained parents over the years when we ask about, you know, indoor um, cigarette smoke. Every single one of them says, yes, we smoke, but we always smoke outside. Uh, so <laughs> do you yeah. have... Do you have do you have any tips for our listeners about, you know, how do you ask about, how do you bring that subject up? I know it can be touchy for some folks. I've had great success just straightforward asking about it, but what, what, how do you ask about it? Oh, goodness. I think all of our, uh, all smokers smoke outside. I mean, they know <laughs> how to answer that question, right? Uh, yeah. Because they don't want to disappoint the doctor. Um, but I, you know, I just, um, you know, I try to be real with the, the parents uh, of my patients and say, you know, just tell them the facts and say, you know, and I'm not judging um, mm. them. I just want to create the best environment for their child and, you know, give them some pointers on um, what they should do, you know, to actually decrease that exposure, which is actually smoke outside, remove the first layer of their clothing once they come back in. Make sure that they are considering the car as a significant space where the child can be exposed to uh, environmental tobacco smoke. If someone's smoking in the car, uh, that should stop immediately. Um, and, you know, just tell them um, what I know um, in terms of resources for, that are available to them also if they're interested in uh, stopping or quitting. Mm. This is great. You know, I've... I've... I'm hearing you say sort of over and over again in, in subtle ways of uh, one, it's important for all of us just to be aware of, of the factors that you know really impact these disparities. Uh, but then we have to take the next step and we have to you know actually ask the questions uh, when we're seeing real life patients in the office and then we have to be able to offer them something uh, whenever they you know tell us that they're having you know these exposures. Yes, I, I, I think it's so important for us to um, you know not to take those, uh, interactions lightly because I think that you know everyone wants what's best for their child um, and the majority of patients you know if they're adult patients who you know are struggling with uh, quitting uh, tobacco smoke uh, or cigarette smoking um, you know they would appreciate 
um, you as a provider listening and, and helping them with that problem if, if it's something that they want to do. Uh, if we can help them pro and provide those resources, I think they would be very appreciative. Mm, absolutely. Now, we, we spent a lot of time talking about asthma prevalence, and it was well established now that uh, minority populations and those with various social factors, environmental factors, have disproportionately higher rates of developing asthma. But does that also translate to differences in their level of asthma severity? Um, I, I think um, it, it can in some, um, in, in, to some degree, uh, because the exposure to uh, those conditions that we talked about uh, is more prevalent in um, in those populations. So exposure to triggers, um, poor access to specialty care, um, and also uh, poor access to, um, or, and I'm sorry, not poor access, but more access to uh, emergency or urgent care type settings uh, in those populations is, is more prevalent. So, um, so we do see, or it seems that uh, for those populations, um, the level of asthma severity may be skewed um, towards being more severe. Uh, but again, I think it's really hard to tease out uh, if, it, if it's actually worse disease or if it's related to some of these other factors that we've, that we've identified. Oh, that's that's a very important concept and just another another layer of complexity to the entire issue. You mentioned urgent care visits and, and um, emergency room visits, but when we talk about asthma morbidity, is it is it just really, you know, urgent healthcare utilization or are, are we talking about other factors as well that impact um, somebody's life? Oh, absolutely. So um, emergency room visits are very, you know, obviously costly and important. Uh, but also looking at utilization of other uh, urgent care, uh, health care services, um, such as hospitalizations or sick visits uh, to uh, the, the regular doctor or to an urgent care uh, clinic. Uh, and then also we have to think about morbidity uh, as uh, looking at things like decreased quality of life, uh, increased uh, medication use, mm -hmm. uh, and, and also, you know, some of the um, psychological factors um, that or impacts uh, that asthma may have on someone's life. Mm. What about um, school attendance, work, things like that? Uh, is that does that sort of fall into this category as well? Uh, um, you know, we we definitely see um, you know direct medical costs as well as indirect medical costs uh, increase due to asthma, uh, and we know about uh, 500,000 hospitalizations annually. Uh, in the United States are due to asthma, 1.3 million emergency room visits due to asthma annually are uh, have been reported. But then you have to look at the indirect costs uh, associated with asthma, including decreased productivity at work, decreased or missed school for children. Um, and some of those statistics are staggering when you think about um, asthma uh, for children in particular, uh, they miss more than 13 million days from school due to mm. asthma, which is a completely treatable uh, disease. Yeah, now, um, those are sobering statistics. And, and speaking of, uh, you know, one statistic that I rarely, if ever, hear about, especially in the media or in the mainstream conversation, uh, is in regards to, you know, people dying from asthma. 
Um, but can you can you inform our listeners about some of the statistics surrounding asthma mortality and also if this disproportionately affects minority populations? Yes. Um, so we don't hear about death due to asthma um, very often. Fortunately, um, there has been a decline in the death rate uh, due to asthma over the last few decades, and some of that has likely been related to um, improved therapies for asthma. But even though you know we have those therapies, about 10 people a day die from asthma in the United States, and uh, again. Um, Black and African American patients have a significantly higher mortality rate compared to whites and all other age groups. Um, and um, you know, one statistic that sticks out in my head is uh, that a, a black or African American patients die at a rate three times higher than, mm. than whites. Oh my gosh! So and. You're describing a chronic condition that impacts millions and millions of people, uh, and yet you've also discussed how it can be controlled, and a lot of these can be prevented, and we still have, as you mentioned, 10 people dying a day on average from asthma in the year 2020. Um, that is uh, you know, something that I hope we hear a lot more about uh, you know, in the competing headlines these days. But you know, speaking of management, um, we know that it requires a lot of education surrounding self-management, uh, the ability to recognize symptoms, know when to treat, how to treat, and especially those with more persistent or severe disease, they have to take daily medications multiple times a day, control their symptoms, avoid exposures, all kinds of you know, nuances to individual care. Uh, but can you talk about some of the specific challenges impacting populations at risk and how that negatively impacts their ability to effectively control their asthma? I mean, how, you know, what challenges do they face in regards to self-management? Yeah, so just like we were talking about asthma it, in and of itself being complicated, treatment of asthma can also be complicated for many patients. Um, you know, we've, we've had asthma national guidelines for the treatment of asthma for a couple of decades now, but for some populations, uh, and particularly uh, low-income minority populations, we know that those populations are less likely to receive the guidelines-based care uh, they're less likely to be prescribed, you know, the standard, of ther standard therapy, which is inhaled corticosteroids. Um, they're also less likely to receive a referral to an asthma specialist mm -hmm. and more likely to receive asthma care in acute care settings like urgent care clinics or the emergency room, which also decreases the likelihood that they would receive, you know, the proper counseling or education that they need that would help them to effectively manage their asthma. And then, you know, further, I think patients in these populations are even also at high risk of being uninsured or underinsured, and they may not be able to afford uh, the medical therapies that are prescribed to them. Wow. So that's, that's a big problem if you can't actually get the care that you need. Um, right. <laughs> oh, so, oh boy, a um, lot more to unpack there. But, you know, what about those who um, are prescribed medications and, and the therapy? And there's, you know, uh, that's a whole separate conversation about the variety of, you know, controller medications and rescue medications and ways to use them and things like that. But are there identifiable characteristics that may occur more frequently among asthma patients from different racial or ethnic backgrounds that impact the way their bodies simply respond to specific medications? Well, I think the the evidence for causal genes is, is has been, I would say, uh, kind of weak. Um, mm -hmm. I think that we have seen some um, 
you know, better or worse response to some medications among different ethnic populations. For example, uh, there, there have been some studies that show that, that um, uh, African Americans may respond better to inhaled corticosteroids compared to leukotriene modifiers. Um, but I, I do think that some of that, you know, is also, you know, potentially related to, you know, it, I think it's just really difficult for us to tease out all of those, what we see, you know, those observed changes. Uh, medication responses uh, without looking at, you know, the social context. You know, maybe those mm -hmm. patients are exposed uh, to different environmental exposures or uh, triggers that, that will would lead, lead, um, lend them to be more susceptible to a better response to certain medications. Um, so I think we have a lot more to learn uh, in this area. Mm, yeah, it's a lot to control for if you're trying to figure out, like you said, what, what factors are actually you know impacting response to a specific medication. Uh, you know, sort of off the cuff here, in your experience and opinion as a researcher, um, do you feel that minority populations are adequately represented in in research on asthma? I don't. Um, I think in general, um, uh, African Americans and minority populations in general uh, have not benefited. Uh, from, uh, in particular, some of the pharmaceutical trials. Uh, when you look at um, when you look at those studies, um, the African American population is generally much less than what we see in well, the population of, of participants in the study is much less than what we see in the general population. Uh, and uh, because we know that uh, African Americans and other minorities have a disproportionate burden of disease, um, you know, I think it's important to maybe overpopulate studies uh, with patients uh, from these populations so that we can learn more about response to medications. Mm. Oh, yeah, that would be fantastic. Um, you know, what, what about community-based programs? What sort of programs have been developed, and, and more importantly, what, which ones have been shown to improve asthma outcomes among at-risk populations? Well, um, fortunately, we've had a lot of success um, with some with some therapies that include school-based therapies for kids or interventions. I'm sorry, school-based interventions for kids, uh, home-based interventions, uh, and I think some of the most successful ones have been uh, those that take a multi-pronged approach. Uh, because you know, as we were saying earlier, that this is a complicated, multifactorial disease. So, uh, not only addressing you know the medical uh, needs, um, medication needs of the patient, but also maybe addressing some of those uh, exposures and things that uh, happen outside of the medical clinic, um, you know, uh, those types of interventions have been really uh, successful. Uh, and I think um, some of the more successful ones have been those that have been uh, developed with community, people in the community who are invested um, you know, building some partnerships with community uh, advocates uh, so that, you know, for instance, children who attend a community center uh, after school or have a uh, directly observed therapy done at school or in an after school program, uh, those types of uh, programs have really been successful uh, in improving um, outcomes for, for patients. 
Oh, and it makes sense. I mean, you described one of the major barriers to effective self-management is a simple lack of access to care. You know, we've been, you know, expecting patients to come travel to come see us. Uh, but if we can actually go to them where they live in their community and in their environment, uh, it sounds like a win-win for everybody involved. Now, you know, right now, uh, you know, hopefully we have listeners from all over the United States and, and often from other countries as well. Uh, and we talked before about the importance of not only increasing our awareness regarding these important factors, but then addressing it, you know, when we're seeing patients. Um, do you have a call to action for all of us? You're, are, there, are there tangible things that we can do to help individual patients? What would you like to see, you know, listeners take away from this on a practical level? Well, um, I think we all have, you know, uh, as providers, uh, a skill set um, that we sometimes don't always put into practice. You know, we, we definitely know how to identify and treat, you know, asthma utilizing the national guidelines as our, you know, um, guide. Uh, but one of the most important things I think clinicians can do to help individual patients is to listen, identify, and respond. Uh, to social factors uh, that might be contributing to adverse health outcomes. Um, and we, we really need to uh, treat the whole patient, and that might mean, you know, digging a little bit deeper uh, in your questions. It might mean, you know, slowing down and just listening to what is being said without being said, you know, because sometimes people give us little messages without actually saying the words. So you know, I'll give you an example. Um, because, you know, we all struggle with this. You know, you're in a busy clinic. Um, you, you, look, you may look at, you know, prescription profile of a patient and see, oh, my gosh, they haven't picked up their, you know, controller med in four months. And, you know, I don't understand why, you know, they haven't done that. And so, you know, I um, had a recent encounter where that happened. And I talked to the mom and I'm like, you know, I don't understand. You know, we've talked about the importance of taking controller meds. We've talked about, you know, that this is a controllable disease and, you know, your child does not have to miss school, doesn't have to sit out from basketball. Um, so I'm, you know, I just, I, there's something missing. And, and, you know, she just, you know, told me, she's like, well, you know, I don't have a car right now um, mm. and I can't get, meds. I, I, I don't, you know, I don't have transportation to get to the pharmacy. And so it's like a light bulb. I'm like, oh, that makes sense. You know, if you can't get to the pharmacy, you can't pick up the medications. Um, and so, you know, we made a couple of phone calls and, and we were able to get home delivery for that patient. So, you know, I think that that is one thing that I hope that people will take away from this is that, you know, sometimes you know, we have to think and not judge uh, why something may be happening in a patient's life and help them problem solve. Uh, so I, when we identify, you know, those social factors that may be impeding our care, uh, we can utilize our resources uh, to help, you know, the patient's problem solve. Mm. Do, do you have any training in or do you utilize uh, motivational interviewing during these interactions? Uh, I don't have any training formally in it, um, but uh, I think uh, with some of the research that I've I've done and uh, just you know being uh, in practice um, for many years, you know I do try um, to employ those tactics when I'm speaking with patients. Yeah, yeah. As you mentioned, a non-judgmental um, 
conversation, really. Uh, we're just trying to help them and they're trying to help their child. Absolutely. Uh, now, you mentioned that there's a, a lack of uh, representation among minority populations, especially in pharmaceutical research and clinical trials and things like that. But what, what do we actually have in, that currently exists in regards to either, you know, efforts that are being done uh, for research in this area, funding pipelines and advocacy? Can you give us some, some more information regarding that? Well, there are definitely some um, new and exciting uh, initiatives um, are recently you know, have been looking more into um, funding opportunities uh, through some of our national and federal um, funding agencies that are looking more at anti-racism research uh, and research that addresses structural and social uh, inequities. Uh, and so that's really exciting. Um, and then we also uh, have a lot of uh, research uh, currently uh, looking into uh, technology-based solutions, uh, which I think is going to be vitally important, um, you know, utilizing telemedicine and mobile applications um, to help with the healthcare delivery. So those are some really Im important and exciting things, I think, that are happening in the research community. Mm, that's great. And, and you mentioned telemedicine, which is something that was foreign to almost all of us uh, just six months ago, and now almost all of us are doing it to some to some degree. But you've been doing it for a while, uh, and I'd love to hear more. Can you tell us about your work using telemedicine services and school-based approaches to help patients uh, living in rural areas where you are? Yes. So, you know, it has been really an uphill battle. You know, uh, I think medical providers or the medical industry has been far behind uh, many other industries in terms of the use of audiovisual technology, uh, and we were thrown into the fire in March. <laughs> uh, so I was really happy about it, you know, being in my position as medical director of telemedicine. Um, you know, we, you know, of course, we're crazy busy with trying to get people uh, started with telemedicine, but I really feel like, um, even pre-COVID, um, that medicine was going to eventually get there. We just got there a lot faster than you know we had you know previously anticipated. Uh, I think that consumers, patients uh, are going to not only want but demand um, to some degree uh, that their providers uh, offer some telemedicine solutions. Uh, and we've you know I think throughout this pandemic that telemedicine can absolutely enhance our practice. You know, there are some patients who we can speak to uh, either, you know, over the phone or via video visit to handle some simple problems. Uh, and in particular, uh, for people who live in rural areas, it is really, really convenient and uh, helps to improve the care that they receive if we're able to see them while they're still in their community. You know, think about, um, you know, some of my follow-up patients who, you know, I need to see uh, periodically, but I may not need to see them every single visit, uh, especially if they're doing well or if, you know, they, they have a simple uh, medical complaint that I can handle via tele telemedicine. I can save them time traveling. I can keep the parent, you know, at work and the child in school. So I think it's a win-win solution. Uh, and I'm, I'm really excited 
I hate the circumstances under which, you know, mm-hmm. we became more um, uh, able to all of these patients via telemedicine. But I, I think on the other side of it, you know, medicine will benefit. Mm, that's one of the few silver linings throughout all this, right? Yes. Yeah. Now, what about what what about asthma specifically makes it so great for telemedicine? Well, I think you know, with our uh, program here, uh, we've been doing telemedicine follow up uh, for a couple of years uh, via telemedicine, and it's so perfect because you know, obviously, as the, per the national guidelines for patients with persistent asthma, we should see them. Uh, several times per year to, to actually help with medication management, um, monitor for side effects. Uh, and, um, you know, again, some of those visits absolutely need to be done in person, um, but not all of them. And we've been able to uh, successfully uh, utilize peripheral devices to actually uh, conduct physical exams for patients remotely. Uh, we've also been able to conduct uh, remote pulmonary function testing uh, and and really provide care, you know, that's comparable to the care that we provide in person via telemedicine. So I think asthma is one of the uh, chronic conditions that is perfect for telemedicine. Uh, it helps us to stay in line with the guidelines in terms of frequency of visits, uh, as well as you know keeps us in touch with our patients. Uh, without them having to to miss even more school uh, or work uh, just for routine care. Mm. Oh, it's great. And, you know, I, I've also been fascinated by our rapid incorporation of telemedicine, and I, I love it as well. I think it, it works out great, especially for follow-up visits and safe travel, and you can provide the same level of care in, in many instances. Um, but, you know, we've also found that this can be an area that can actually highlight some of the disparities among our patients from various backgrounds. Uh, you know, can you comment on some of the things we've learned in regards to that? Oh, absolutely. So we have seen um, you know, we have been particularly plagued with uh, technology uh, limitations, internet access limitations uh, for some of our patients who live in really rural areas of our state. Um, so I think that this is an area that needs to be addressed, you know, obviously at a, at a much higher level. Uh, this, you know, is a problem that needs to be addressed by our, you know, federal and, and state and local governments. Uh, to improve access uh, to internet and Wi-Fi uh, so that those patients who live in areas um, that that are currently, you know, without access can have the same benefits as patients who live in areas with, with, with those capabilities. Mm. You know, isn't it amazing that something we all take for granted with the, the phones we have in our pockets and the power that they bring us, and yet there are segments of our population at, in highest need and at highest risk who just lack basic cellular service or, or access to Wi-Fi. That just it blows my mind. Oh, it's it's amazing. You know, I've, I've read stories about, you know, families. And, you know, I think it also came to light uh, as, during this pandemic when children were taken out of school and mm-hmm. Had to convert to virtual um, less, you know, education, and you know, families uh, that didn't have internet access were left out. You know, they had to go to public spaces uh, or you know, drive. You know, still had to drive. You know, several miles to be able 
uh, to provide that internet access, to receive that internet access. So I think it's, it's something that's really, really important uh, to be addressed uh, with our government. Mm. It, you know, from your personal standpoint, with all of your efforts with telemedicine and research and advocacy and everything that you've done uh, in your location, have you physically spent time in some of these rural locations? And if so, um, how has that changed your perspective? Well, I'm glad that you asked that question because, yes, I have. Um, so, um, you know, I actually grew up in a very rural area of uh, the state. I actually grew up in the Mississippi Delta. Um, so I know firsthand, um, you know, some of the struggles and the uh, limitations of living in a, a really, really rural area. Um, you know, when I was growing up, we had to go to a physician um, probably an hour and a half away from where we actually lived for medical care. So uh, I think that that has given me a lot of perspective on the struggle um, that people have in, in rural areas. You know, obviously, uh, things are a bit different now because, um, you know, that was that was just a couple of decades ago, uh, but I think some of the some of the struggles uh, still remain. Um, you know that poor access to medical care, uh, limited access to internet or technology, um, and you know having a very medically underserved uh, region. You know regions in this country. You know those things remain uh, be problematic. Hmm. When, when you interact with your colleagues from across the country that also have similar efforts like you do uh, with trying to expand care into communities and rural areas, do, they, do you find that um, anecdotally, do they have similar backgrounds? I'm just, I'm fascinated and I wonder how much of that, you know, you're growing up uh, played into your sort of professional interests, but have you noticed that among others as well? Um, I, I have in some, uh, but I've also had plenty of colleagues who grew up in, you know, large cities, um, you yeah. know, who, you know, have seen, um, you know, equally uh, disproportionate uh, problems uh, in terms of access or, you know, other factors that, that impact uh, the medical care that patients receive. So I think a lot of us uh, with interest in disparities go into it because, you know, maybe some early life exposures to, uh, those conditions or uh, just an interest because, you know, we, we recognize it as a, as a major problem uh, and a gap that needs to be filled. Mm. Oh, boy, Dr. Perry, I, I could talk to you all day about this is fascinating. And, uh, you know, I, I want to be respectful of your time, though, and, and thank you so much for joining us. This has been extremely informative. Uh, before I let you go, is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, I'd just like to say thank you so much for, um, for addressing um, a you know, disparities in asthma uh, and giving me the opportunity to uh, discuss it. It obviously is a passion of mine, uh, and I am very um, hopeful for the future. I'm excited about uh, some of the initiatives that we spoke about in terms of increasing uh, the utilization of technology and, uh, you know, more research into the social factors that, that play a role uh, in disparities. So thank you so much. The pleasure was all ours. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Information about credit claiming for this and other episodes can be found at www.education.aaaai.org forward slash podcasts. 
Credit claiming will be available for one year from the episode's original release date. Please visit www.aaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.